Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Mark Vandermeer with you and recording this one from my office, from my office at NRG Stadium, as opposed to the mobile Hyundai Texans radio studio or the other Hyundai Texans radio studio. But it doesn't really matter. You're listening, and I appreciate it. And we've got a lot to cover. It's been a strange week in many ways. It's been an exciting week because you have the Colts coming up, and I always love that. I love having the Texans match up with the Indianapolis Colts. I wrote about this on HoustonTexans.com. Look, this is a rivalry. I get asked that a lot. Is it a rivalry if it's so out of whack in terms of the overall series record? I get it, but in the 19-year history of the Texans, you have to look at it as two different eras. The first era is the Peyton Manning era. And, yes, he owned the Texans. Nine years of matchups between Indy and Houston, and Manning went 16-2. and two. Ouch, 16-2 and two against the Houston Texans. You know what the two losses are. One, it was in 2006 when Chris Brown, on the 10th attempt for the Texans to try to beat Indy, kicked a field goal on Christmas Eve to send everybody into delirium. And then a six-game series losing streak followed that one. And then in 2010, in the season opener, Arian Foster ran for 231 yards, and the rest is history. The Texans won that day. And it changed the rivalry forever. Look, Manning would no longer be a Colt after that year. He had the neck fusion problem in 2011. He was gone from Indy in 2012 and beyond. And the Texans were able to get a victory over him in 2012, week three at Denver. We all remember that. I don't have to relive every moment of Peyton Manning as a Bronco in post-Colts career. The point is, the Manning era, Colts owned the Texans. After that, not as much. Now, With the 2010 Arian Foster goes nuts victory, and then 2011 Ben Tate goes nuts in the opener, not quite to the extent of Arian Foster, but he ran for, I think, a buck 50 plus. And then the Texans also were able to get a split in 2012. So 10, 11, and 12, split, split, split. Then another six-game series losing streak because the Colts swept in 2013, the Colts swept in 2014, and won the opener in 2015. And by the way, they won the capper in 2012. I mean, I didn't get into this in my article, but that victory by the Colts to close out the regular season in 2012 is as devastating a win as you will find for an opponent against the Houston Texans as far as the Texans' perspective, of course, because the Texans, had they won that game, would have had home field advantage throughout the playoffs that year. And that was, we all remember it well, losing three out of four down the stretch. The Patriots, they beat the Colts at home to win the division for the second straight year but lost to Christian Ponder and the Minnesota Vikings and then lost to the Colts up there. Deji Kareem kickoff return, touchdown. Andrew Luck caps his rookie season with a nice victory. Colts on their way to the playoffs. They have one bad year. They go 2-14. and 14. It enables them to draft Andrew Luck number one overall, and they're off and running in 2012 back in the playoffs. I mean, that was as heartbreaking as you can imagine. The Colts just bring up so much, and I didn't even mention that aspect of it in my article about this rivalry. And the point is that, all right, so you have another losing streak after that 2012 victory at home in which you win the division against Luck, six in a row. But finally, finally in 2015, Bill O'Brien and the Houston Texans win up there in Indy for the first time ever in franchise history. Brandon Whedon comes off the bench. We know all about it. Johnny and I talk about that win all the time. It might be my favorite victory ever. I'm not saying it's the best Texans win ever, but it might be my favorite. I always say there's a difference between your favorite and the best, right? My favorite guitarist is Jimmy Page. 
He's not the best rock guitarist ever. He's one of them. But he's my favorite. Jimi Hendrix is the best rock guitarist ever, I think, objectively. And I love him, too. I'm just saying favorite, you know, favorite ice cream, favorite this, favorite that. My favorite win might be the first time the Texans ever beat the Colts up there. It ended years of frustration. The franchise started in 2002. This is 2015. It took us that long to beat the Colts up there. You know how long it took us to beat the Jags on the road? Once. The first time the Texans ever tried it, they got it. And that was a pretty decent Jags bunch with Mark Brunell at quarterback. You know how long it took to beat the Titans up there? Year three. Steve McNair was still there. They were a good team pretty much. Now they were starting to fall off a bit that year. But you get my drift. That was 2004, and you beat Steve McNair and the Titans up there. Year three, attempt number three on the road. Well, there you were at Indy in 2015. That's what it took to beat them. In the last five years, this rivalry is five and five in the regular season. That's pretty good for the Texans. But it's not that good when I tell you this. There's another game in the mix there. Oh, yeah, the playoff game in 2018. Ouch, that one hurt a lot, and... That was Andrew Luck against Deshaun Watson, and my goodness, did that sting. But I think it adds to the rivalry. It adds to my hatred of the Colts, and it's healthy sports hatred again. Healthy sports hatred, much better than real hatred, where hatred really belongs in sports. But it makes you despise the Colts even more. T.Y. Hilton showing up in the stadium with a clown mask. I thought there was no way the Texans were going to lose that day when I saw that. But lose they did. Dan Dockage hosts a radio show in Indy, and he's a former college basketball coach. You see him on ESPN hosting uh, or doing color, color commentary for college basketball, and he's great. And I'm on with him every year the Texans play the Colts, and we were talking about that one, and I just thought there was no way the Texans were going to lose that game. They had lost to them at home a few weeks before. Texans were going to be ready. They were going to be ready, willing, and able to beat the Colts. They couldn't get it done. All right, so the following year, 2019, it's a split, and the Texans got a nice win over the Colts on a Thursday night. This is after Houston got blown out by Baltimore on the road. We all remember that. We want to forget it. And the Texans came back for a prime timer against the Colts, who were doing well at the time. They would fall off after this game. Texans won it 20-17. At the time, I thought that was as good a win over Indy as I've ever seen observing the Texans. All right, this year. You've got 4-7 and seven Houston against 7-4 and four Indy. That doesn't tell the whole story, does it? Texans are playing better, having won three out of their last four. The Colts were playing pretty well. I mean, they beat the Green Bay Packers, my goodness. And then Tennessee just railroads them last week. Look, as usual with the Texans and the Colts, you don't quite know what to expect. You might think you do, but you probably don't. It's going to be fun. Texans, even though you lose Will Fuller and Bradley Roby this week, and that's a pretty tough loss. I'm not going to sugarcoat that, okay? Losing, although I get asked this all the time this week, which is tougher to overcome? What do you think of the losses of those two particular players? I think it's tough to overcome Roby. He's been playing well, and he's definitely one of your best defenders. Come on. Now, Will Fuller might be your second best offensive player, but the thing is, you have a lot of other weapons, and you still have the quarterback. You still have the trigger man to make good decisions, and he's had a full week of prep knowing that Will would be unavailable. So I think that Roby is a really tough thing to overcome. But again, defense, they've been playing better overall. There's just something about them. I think the coordinators, when you look at Anthony Weaver and Tim Kelly, they're kind of coming into their own slowly but surely. Look, when Bill O'Brien 
was dismissed when they took over as coordinator. They were coordinators anyway, but when they really took over without Bill O'Brien's mentorship, Romeo Cornell moves in. They set it up however they set it up. And a lot of people thought, well, the results are going to be much better or different or whatever you thought they were going to be. It was too much to ask for it to be transformed immediately, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And I think that Tim Kelly over the last few weeks, Watson playing better, Kelly getting used to the situation, getting adjusted to being a play caller, whether O'Brien is here or not, I think that takes time. And I also think it takes time for Watson to get accustomed to the new pass catchers and just everybody working together. Of course, no Hopkins, but Fuller, Cooks, Cobb. I know Cobb's on IR. Obviously, Stills is gone now. Obviously, Fuller's gone. You're going to have to find another way, but it's not like Watson hasn't been introduced to these guys. So hopefully, in fact, during training camp, I saw him throwing to guys like Stephen Mitchell and Chad Hansen an awful lot. So let's see what happens here on Sunday when they set it up however they're going to set it up. Okay, let's get more on this rivalry. And again, I'll call it a rivalry because of where it's been in the last decade, particularly the last five years. I'll say it's a rivalry. But Matt Taylor is the voice of the Colts. He's real good. And I caught up with him and asked him what it was like broadcasting for Indy during the pandemic. Well, it's certainly been different. I mean, home games are, for the most part, the same in that we're actually at the game, which is always great. Uh, So we're at Lucas Oil Stadium in the press box doing the games like we normally do. But um, it's different this year. I feel like I'm in a a phone booth or a cubicle because there's plexiglass between me and the analyst uh, just because of the COVID-19 protocols. So we're all affected as far as that goes. Um, home games are still they're still loud, but obviously not as loud as they normally are at Lucas Oil Stadium. Uh, the cap, at, as far as attendance this year, has been around twelve thousand five hundred fans. Um, but I give those people that that you know the, the people that are coming to games, they are making a lot of noise. It does feel somewhat normal because you have crowd noise in the background, and you know crowd you know booing when things go bad and cheering when things go well. So it's it's normal as far as that goes. Road games are a completely different story for us. You know, we're not traveling with the team uh, to make sure everybody on on the crew, the, the broadcast crew is safe and healthy. So we've been doing everything remotely like a lot of people in 2020, which is fine. It's different. It's taken a little bit of getting used to. But we uh, we do all that from Lucas Oil Stadium uh, up in the control room. That's the room where they kind of do all the in-house production stuff, you know, with the Jumbotron. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of all set up as far as that goes. We just kind of take it over on a non-home game uh, when the Colts are out of town. So it's been different. Uh, it's taken a little bit of adjusting, too. But, hey, we're still working. We're still calling games. We're still getting on the air. And that is really what it's all about here in 2020 is we all make sacrifices and, and kind of adjust to the new modern times here. And you're, you're seeing a team that was in first place up until last week when the Titans got to the Colts. So tell me about the last few weeks here because you had a win against Tennessee at their place. They beat you at your place. So what's that been like jockeying for a position atop the division? Well, the month of November, uh, Mark, has just been a gauntlet here for the Colts. It was a meat grinder. I mean, I know, you know the Texans kind of went through that at the beginning of the season, but the month of November featured five games, Detroit, Baltimore, Tennessee on the road, Green Bay at home, and then Tennessee again. Um, and the Colts went three and two in that stretch. Um, but really, you know, the games that really mattered against teams that are, you know, AFC um you would call playoff teams and certainly the Packers and the NFC are a playoff team. The Colts went two and two. Um, so I think realistically, 
they got through that stretch. They managed it. I guess that would be the, the, the appropriate way to say it. They managed it. Uh, they didn't have a losing record. Um, I thought they got a signature win in overtime against Green Bay. They got a really good win against Tennessee um, on Thursday night a few weeks ago. But the loss that I think is really going to, you know, I think set this team going forward um, in a negative way to see how they bounce back is that loss on Sunday to Tennessee. I think it's it's gut check time for this team. Uh, you know, the AFC South lead, as you said, uh, was on the line when Tennessee came in on Sunday. Both teams were seven and three and Tennessee just they flat out came in, Mark, and they wanted it more. They just played, I thought, harder. They executed better. Derrick Henry ran all over the Colts, uh, the Colts on offense. They lost. Anthony Costanzo at left tackle. They were playing with a lot, uh, without a lot of key players due to COVID deals and injuries. Um, but you know what? Nobody cares. Every team is dealing with all that stuff, um, in, you know, week 12 of this 2020 pandemic riddled season. So everybody's in the same boat. There's no excuses. You know, Tennessee just came in and they, they, they you know, they absolutely took it to the Colts. There's no, there's no, you know, sugarcoating in it. They won 45 to 26. Uh, the defense gave up a season high in points in one half. They gave up 35 mm-hmm. to Tennessee. Um, so, you know, the things that the Colts have been doing all well all season long, uh, they did not do at all well in this game on Sunday. You know, they gave up some big plays down the field to A.J. Brown. Derrick Henry, as I said, ran for 178 on offense. They turned it over. Uh, they just couldn't get anything going with Phillip Rivers in the passing game. Uh, so it, I think it's gut check time now for the Colts with five games to go. They still have a shot at the playoffs, but now with, you know, here in the month of December, uh, the margin for error is pretty slim, and all of these games are magnified now for the Colts if they want to be playing in January. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joining us on Texans Radio. All right, so Phillip Rivers, a little bit up and down, but mostly up this year. What have you seen? What's your review of Rivers as a Colt so far? You know, I I think Phillip Rivers has played exactly – the way that the Colts envisioned him playing when they brought him in in free agency back in March. He was a guy that, and I I thought it made a lot of sense for them to make that move in this, again, pandemic-filled season where he knew Frank Reich, he knew the offensive coordinator, Nick Sirianni. Those three guys all worked together in San Diego with the Chargers where Frank was the O.C., uh, Sirianni was the quarterback's coach. Um, They had some really good years together, putting up a lot of points and, and you know, Rivers had some of his, individually speaking, best years in the passing game. So just coming in before the season even started, he knew 85 to 90 percent of the playbook. So not being on the field together during the summer and during OTAs and not having a preseason, uh, all of that, I, I think, affected the Colts, but not to the extent that it maybe would have affected other teams just because of the familiarity between those three guys. So I think here now that we're past the halfway point of the season, with Rivers, you're really starting to see him settle in and, and become really comfortable with what the Colts are asking him to do. And that's not a ton. They're not asking him on a week-to-week basis to throw the ball like Patrick Mahomes, uh, where it's you know 50 attempts per game, 300 yards. Uh, Rivers has been completely solid and in control and knows where to go with the football You know, on basically every play. I think in the last five games here, he's hovering around 70% completion percentage. Um, and has only three interceptions in that span, has 11 touchdown passes, um, and is really what the Colts on offense with Phillip Rivers, Mark, what they do is they spread the wealth. You know, they have at least eight guys uh, that have caught a pass in every game this season. 
They've had 11 guys catch passes in two games. Uh, that's a season high. And so, you know, one week it might be Naeem Hines. Another week it might be Michael Pittman. Another week it might be T.Y. Hilton. Uh, you just don't know. Uh, they, they spread the ball around very, very well. They simply take what defenses give them. And they have a lot of really good playmakers. I talked about the receivers uh, but they also have good tight ends and Trey Burton and Mo Ali Cox backs out of the backfield with Jonathan Taylor and Naeem Hines. There's a lot of different guys that can beat you and the Colts just simply kind of take what the defense gives them uh, and they take advantage of the matchups on a given play. Well, I was going to ask you, yeah, when they're playing well offensively, what's going right? And I think you just told us what's going right. And I know that Texans fans are curious about T.Y. because he's been a real thorn in the side, maybe a dagger in the side of the Houston Texans over the years and what kind of ty are we seeing in 2020 well you know we we talk about this in indianapolis a lot and you know the way we always describe it here with ty hilton not having a breakout year he's not on pace for a thousand yards uh he scored his first touchdown just last sunday against tennessee and so all of those things are a little bit eyebrow raising here with colts fans but ty hilton's um value to the Colts has changed over the years since Frank Reich uh, has come on board as the head coach. It used to be, you know, T.Y. Hilton had to have a 100-yard game in order for the Colts just to have a chance to win. You know, with Andrew Luck mm-hmm. back in the day, Mark, it was, you know, those five and seven-step drops and throw the ball deep down the field at T.Y. Hilton. And a lot of times it was playing the Texans. He'd have huge games. And I'm not trying to pour salt in the wound, but T.Y.'s value to the Colts is a little bit different this year because their offense is quick rhythm. It's a little bit West Coast. I mean, we all know Phillip Rivers gets the ball out in less than two and a half seconds. He sees the defense, gets the ball out. I mean, that's led to his low sack numbers on the year. Um, so T.Y. Hilton is just not not that guy where they need him to you know re, uh, catch 50-yard bombs anymore. Uh, the numbers are a little bit down, and they're less dependent on T.Y. Hilton, which I think overall is a good thing. But if you just watch the tape, T.Y. is still, I think, an elite receiver. He's still getting open. Nothing has really diminished as far as his uh, individual play. It's just his value to the Colts is much different since Frank Reich has taken over. Okay, so defensively, Matt, what is going well defensively? We've heard a lot about this unit. I know they didn't play well against the Titans on Sunday. But what have you seen other than that? Because a lot of people have been raving about the Colts' defense. Well, I think DeForest Buckner coming over here, uh, it was a draft trade. The Colts traded their 13th overall selection to the 49ers for DeForest Buckner, and he really has made a ton of difference. I mean, he affects every layer of that defense. It gets pressure up the middle um, from the interior. Uh, Obviously, he commands double teams in the running game. He helps the linebackers scrape free and make plays. But I think the biggest uh, impact he's had on this team is in the secondary where guys in the back end don't have to cover as long and quarterbacks are having to make hurried throws or more hurried throws this year as compared to last year and so when he wasn't out there on Sunday he was one of those COVID guys for the Colts I mean you notice you, you he just makes that much of a difference and that much of an impact so hopefully the Colts can get him back into this game uh, against the Houston Texans. But, you know, big picture on the Colts' defense, they're stopping the run at an elite level. They're not giving up big plays for the most part. Um, and they just, they you know, you're talking about a, a defense here under Matt Eberflus in year three. The core of this defense, guys like Anthony Walker and uh, Darius Leonard, and some of these guys on the defensive line, this is now year three for them in this same system. So they can play this defense – and they can make these calls and make these adjustments 
like the back of their hand. The problem for the Colts, you know, if you want to just talk about this game from a big picture standpoint, is that, you know, the, the second half of games for the Colts has been great for the most part. The first half of games has been a problem defensively, uh, especially these last two games. The Colts played the Packers and the Titans. And combined numbers uh, in the first half of those two games, the Colts have allowed nine touchdowns, 63 points, and over 550 yards. Mm-hmm. So Colts fans are saying, hey, why can't we get the, the Colts defense in the second half in the first half and for a complete game. That's what they're trying to accomplish, you know, in these last five games because, you know, you're, you're down 14 points to the Packers. You're down 21 points to the, to the, the Titans at halftime in these last two weeks. Uh, and remarkably, the Colts are one and one uh, in those games um, in this two-game stretch. So uh, they're trying to play a full 60-minute uh, ball game on defense. But for the most part this season, the Colts have taken advantage of uh, a weak schedule at the beginning of the season, and then they've just sort of continued that momentum defensively here as they're a top 10 unit across the board in yards, passing yards, and against the rush as well. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joining us. Matt, what about the Titans? You just saw them up close and personal. How good do you think they are? The Texans lost to them deep in overtime. Uh, what do you think their prospects are down the stretch? Well, I think they're good. I really do. I think they're good, and and not to oversimplify things, but they're just an old-school football team, and, you know, the recipe to beat them is not hard to figure out, but it's hard to execute it. That's just how good they are. You know, on offense, obviously you have to stop Derrick Henry. The guy is literally a a, a running freight train. Uh, He can run over you. When he gets downhill, he's got the perfect blend of size, speed, and power, Um, and then you know, when that running game was working, Mark, you guys know the play action pass for Tennessee is a huge part of their their arsenal. And then you have to take away the big play uh, to A.J. Brown. And the Colts didn't do any of those things uh, against Tennessee last Sunday. A.J. Brown had a 70-yard catch for a touchdown. As I mentioned, Henry, I mean, had it not been for them kind of taking the foot off the gas pedal, he would have been over 200 yards rushing. And Ryan Tannehill was pretty efficient in the passing game. You know, defensively, they're a little bit of a – you know, I would say that's a little bit of their Achilles heel. But when their offense is humming, it doesn't matter because they play with the lead. So, again, I, I think they're a really, really well put together team. Uh, and it's not hard to figure out how to beat them. But that's just how good they are in terms of their execution. When they play with the lead and they kind of keep you at bay on defense, uh, they are a tough out for sure. Matt, how do you think it's been with these teams playing with few or no fans and how it's affected them. What's your take on that? I feel like they've gotten used to it to a degree. Uh, the Texans were in Detroit for Thanksgiving. It was empty, but they brought their own energy, and I think teams have had to get used to that. But what are you seeing out there as you watch us watch NFL football with virtually no fans out there? Yeah, it's, you know, the Colts, I mean, the AFC South, the Colts and Texans are playing, you know, the NFC North this year, and I don't think any of those fans um, maybe the Cleveland Browns, they had fans, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, most of those teams in the NFC North do not have fans. You know, you, the Lions didn't have fans. The Bears didn't have fans. And just and to your point, you're exactly right. Just watching those games feels eerie. It, it feels bizarre. And, you know, from a broadcast standpoint, you know, we, we played the Bears in week four. Uh, we the, the Colts score a touchdown with Mo Alley Cox. He gets into the end zone, and guys are kind of just like looking at each other, like how do we how do we handle the celebration here? You know, most <laughs> most of the most of the guys are kind of like looking around, like expecting there to be a penalty 
uh, when they score a touchdown because it's just quiet. Like that's that's normally what happens when you have something go well, but it's quiet. It's it's usually something negative that's happened with a penalty or someone was offsides or something. Um, so they're always kind of like just looking around, waiting for something negative to pop up. But yeah, I mean, going back to what I said if, at Lucas Oil Stadium, when the Colts do have fans in the stands, it makes a world of difference. I think just in terms of the atmosphere and the energy, especially when the Colts defense is on the field, they feed off. I mean, every defense for that matter feeds off the crowd and the, the atmosphere and the momentum of the game. And so when you don't have that on the field, you have to kind of generate that. You kind of have to generate that, that hype, uh, that momentum trying to make a play. That's where guys like for the Colts anyways, Darius Leonard and Anthony Walker and Justin Houston come into play uh, because those are leaders on that side of the ball. And they try to bring up everybody's energy to their level when they're out there, whether there's fans or no fans, uh, regardless of the venue. All right, Matt, I've asked you indie sports questions from time to time. So tell me this one. In a non-COVID world, if somebody asks you, what kind of sports town is Indianapolis? What is it like? What kind of sports town is Indy in a non-COVID world? What's your answer? I mean, I, I think it's one of the best sports towns in the country. I really do. You know, if, if you, I mean, not to get all political and economical on you, but if you go back to the 80s, uh, Indianapolis sort of doubled down as a city on on sports to be honest with you you know they built uh the rca dome before they even had the colts you know the pan am games they've always had the indianapolis 500 uh, but they they built all these venues to attract uh sporting events and sporting teams you know the pacers have been a great franchise in the nba you know a beautiful venue there at, at bankers life field house they're having the nba all-star game there in a couple of years it was supposed to be next year but it got moved back because of of covid and everything uh, but Lucas Oil Stadium has hosted multiple Final Fours. You know, when, when the NCAA comes out and they say we're trying to create like a bubble environment for the NCAA tournament, uh, not just the Final Four, but the entire tournament, the first place they turn to is Indianapolis because mm-hmm. it's just a great sports town that has all of these venues in and around the city that could support, you know, a 68-team bubble tournament. Um, I talked about the 500. Obviously, racing is a huge part of the, the culture here. You've got NASCAR here. Uh, you've had in the past Formula One come in. There's, there's the, I mean, the Super Bowl, for crying out loud, has been in Indianapolis uh, in, a, in a cold weather environment in February. So I just don't think there's many you know, cities in America that can pull off the, uh, the success sports-wise that Indianapolis does. I mean, the Big Ten tournament is always here. Uh, the NCAA football national championship game is coming here in a couple of years. Uh, there's nothing Indianapolis can't pull off, and they do it. They do such a good job with the convention center, and then all the venues that I just talked about. They all kind of come together. And uh, when when you hear all the time about who's your hospitality, it's a real thing. People around here love having big events because, unlike in other big cities where a big, a big event might come in and it might just be like one of, you know, five or six things going on. When, when, when the Big Ten tournament comes to town or when they, you know, the Final Four comes to town, it literally takes over the whole city. It is a huge event, and everybody comes in from all the different suburbs to partake downtown in, in just the atmosphere and, you know, the great Hoosier hospitality that I talked about that Indianapolis consistently pulls off. All right, one more for you. What are people saying? What do you think of the Houston Texans right now as you headed to Sunday's game at NRG Stadium? 
Well, they're an interesting team. Obviously, record-wise, they're four and seven. But to me, they don't look like a four and seven team. You know, like Denver's four and seven. Like Denver's a four and seven team. Houston's not. They're much better than that. And I think, you know, they found a little bit. You obviously know better than me. They found a little bit of uh, rhythm and some momentum uh, with Romeo Cornell. I think, you know, they're four and three under him as an interim coach. Um, disappointing start, obviously, with a, with an zero and four record, and then one and six to begin the season. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what their offense looks like now without Will Fuller, because when he's healthy and he's played the Colts a few times healthy, uh, he's made them pay. And uh, without that big playability, um, I'm interested to see what the passing game looks like. Obviously, Roby being suspended, uh, that's a big hit to their defense. Uh, but the big thing for me is just you know Watson, just an incredible player. Uh, you know, nine game stretch here with, I think, 22 touchdowns, only three picks, well over 100 passer rating. I mean, in the last six games, he's just made a lot of defenses look silly. 70% completion percentage, 16 total touchdowns in the last six weeks, no turnovers. Uh, I think he and Patrick Mahomes are probably the two best young quarterbacks in the game. And I think as long as you have him, and, uh, you know, a, a pretty good solid offensive line blocking for him. You're always going to have a shot. And that's why I think this game on Sunday between the Colts and Texans, it's going to be a stereotypical Houston Indianapolis ball game. It's going to come down to the wire. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a last two minute type of thing, a one possession game. And, and don't think for a second, just because the Colts are seven and four and the Texans are four and seven, that people here in Indianapolis think this is just going to be an automatic W. Okay, well, we're really looking forward to it, Matt, and I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. You got it. My pleasure. There's Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, and that's going to do it for the Vandermeer's View podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and check out all the other Texans podcasts wherever you got this one or wherever fine podcasts are available Sunday at noon. Don't miss it. Texans and Colts on Battle Red Day. Have a great day, everyone, and go Texans.